In today's episode of the Chavrusa Podcast, Mailbag Friday edition number three, where we respond to questions fielded this week, including, should I take a job that I am not passionate about? Can one administer a vaccine on Shabbat? How come you haven't released a statement on the riots this week? And much more. Thank you for listening. This is Moshe Shambra. And here we go. Okay, so here's something. Somebody asks, Rabbi, how come you haven't commented on the horrendous occurrences this week in the Capitol in D.C.? And not only that, but there's somebody I really respect, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, he's the rabbi of Boca Raton Synagogue, he wrote an entire thread, and he starts it off, and he says, as a rabbi, the moment something significant, if not historic, occurs, there is a pressure to weigh in, to put out a statement or write a post. The luxury of time to process, think, study, consider, consult is gone. In the absence of commenting immediately, people draw their own conclusions and assumptions about what you believe. So while, while I wish I had time, here it goes, and he, and he gives a statement on what occurred. And now I'm going to have to disagree here that I agree with the fact that there's this incredible amount of pressure to say something. You feel that, oh, look, this person's saying, everybody's saying, I need to put out a statement. I need to weigh in on this. And not only internally, but externally, there's pressures of people saying, hey, how come you didn't say a comment? Silence is violence or whatever they're, they're saying these days. And here's the thing. I don't think that just because there's pressure uh, to put out a statement, especially if you don't have the time to really analyze and, and come to your own conclusion, that that. You need to put one out just because you're a rabbi. Now, I think it's also it's also rooted in, in a deferring vision of, of a rabbi, the definition of a rabbi between a political activist and a spiritual activist. I do think we're activists, but in a spiritual sense. So therefore, I'm not going to put out, anytime something happens in the news, I'm not going to condemn Harvey Weinstein. I'm not going to condemn... Jeffrey Epstein and the circumstances of his death, Bernie Madoff. Yeah, of course, of course, any rabbi will condemn that. If you ask any any thinking, uh, authentic rabbi about Trump's rhetoric, of course they'll 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 condemn it and, and tell you that it's it's a terrible thing, it's not to be emulated, and it's a horrible example. Of course, but you don't have to put out a, a post for that to make your point. Rather, you could point out, look at every single Orthodox community and their focus on Shmiras Halashan, their focus on, on learning the laws of, of guarding your tongue, of clean speech, of talking in constructive ways, staying away from gossip, staying away from talking about other people, staying away from any negative speech, any hurtful speech. Talk about that. Talk about the flips. Talk about the, the, the life and story of, of people that have made it their life's mission to help spread clean speech. If you want to raise the level of public rhetoric, and maybe in place of posting critical social media posts, all these people that are weighing in on this, maybe start encouraging amongst yourself, amongst your friends, your immediate group, focus on your circle of influence, where you could influence people, where you could weigh in and, and have that immediate effect, not your circle of concern. Of course, there are things concerning, but... How come nobody weighed in on the uh, the kidnapping in in the, by Boko Haram terrorists? There's like 300 
kids that were kidnapped from a high school. I didn't see anybody weighing in on that. Yeah, this is not like, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? I'm just pointing out that that's not the job. It's a misunderstanding of, of a rabbi as a public figure. A rabbi should be a spiritual activist whose mission is to actualize their, their followers, their students' potential through moral guidance and inspiration. And if the student, if their follower is engaged in a questionable immoral behavior and is receptive to mentorship, then the rabbi will do whatever he can to influence him for the better. Issuing public declarations isn't going to inspire, isn't going to motivate people to grow. So that's why I didn't weigh it. Now, if there's something in the day, I'm not saying you have to stay away from all politics because a lot of times you could take a value, you could show the value in, in a nonpartisan way, in a non oh, the direct way and, and bring out a point, bring out a moral idea. And sometimes there's, there's a lot to talk about, but the Torah is a lot higher than politics. And Torah is a lot more complex and more, uh, it's uh, operating on an entire different system. And therefore, even if there's pressure to weigh in on something, I would personally think to resist that pressure and, um, yeah, just resist it. That's what I would say. Anyway. Next question comes from a senior in college and university. And the question is, how much focus should I place on finding a job that I am passionate about? Now, this is a question I think it's, I think it's common. I think it, I mean, it weighs on my mind a lot. I have an interesting situation because my job is I'm super passionate about it and it's super meaningful. And this was my is my my one career has been my one career and therefore it's a very interesting thought experiment to uh try to imagine being in a job that was that i wasn't necessarily um as passionate as meaningful as as i have so it's it's very very real for me trying to to understand this now it's it's bandied about often that Oh, you get a job that you love, you never work a day in your life, things like that. And there's a, a large emphasis, a large uh, common sentiment of finding things that you're passionate about. And that is the key to success. Now, I don't think, I don't think that this is uh, healthy. And the reason is like this, uh, for re- very pragmatic reasons. Now, just to give a backdrop, a philosophical backdrop perhaps there's a book called all things shining published in 2011 uh, written by a a man named hubert dreyfus who taught philosophy at berkeley for over 40 years and sean kelly um, who is the chair of harvard's philosophy department and I'm reading now from a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, who who, who summarizes uh, their findings. And their book, it's called All Things Shining. It's exploring the notions of sacredness and meaning that have evolved throughout history of human culture. And they set out to reconstruct this history because they're worried about its input in our current era. And they explain that it used to be that people had meaning through spirituality. It was very common. Um, in all areas of the world, even if it was sometimes paganism and distorted um, counterfeit spiritualities, but there was there was a sense of meaning. There was a body of 
ideas that people were subscribing to that it was beyond their selves. And even uh, later on in times of the Enlightenment, when uh, individuals seeking human rights, freeing uh, people from oppression, it it gave a sense of of bigger purpose, bigger picture. But this is good in the political arena. But in the domain of the metaphysical, this thinking stripped the world of the order and sacredness essential to creating meaning. Because in a post-enlightenment world, we have tasked ourselves to identify what's meaningful and what's not, an exercise that can seem arbitrary and induce a creeping nihilism. As they write, the Enlightenment's metaphysical embrace of the autonomous individual leads not just to a boring life, it leads almost inevitably to a nearly unlivable one. And that's a problem faced today, that if you don't have a vision for your life, if you don't have a belief in, a a deeply held belief in yourself that comes from reality and not just uh, arbitrary thing that you made up that you decided that this is meaningful and this is purposeful <laughs> because if it's just you that's that's quite arbitrary and, and highly unlivable definitely not definitely not uh, sustainable it's sort of like uh, I think I forgot exactly who called it I think it was Rabbi David Wallaby out in Los Angeles conservative rabbi who called it cut flower ethics when you have an ethical system that works perhaps very well for you and you feel content, you feel meaning, but it's a cut flower. So right now it's a flower, it's beautiful, but it's not sustainable. You can't give that over to somebody else that doesn't buy into those same uh, arbitrary conclusions that you have arrived at. So Dreyfus and Kelly in their book, they have a, a interesting solution to this problem that in my opinion, falls short because <laughs> you're missing out on something that's that's something so powerful and relevant and timeless that Torah observance provides that gives the framework for meaning and for depth and for satisfaction and to give life its its deepest journey and deepest uh, connection. Uh, their argument, though, it's, it's interesting because it pertains very much to this work passion uh, paradox, and that is their argument is to reintroduce craftsmanship to the world. Craftsmanship provides a key to reopening sacredness in a responsible matter. And they use as an example, as an illustration, a master wheelwright, the profession of shaping wooden wagon wheels. And they write, quote, because each piece of wood is distinct, it has its own personality. The woodworker has an intimate relationship with the wood he works in subtle, its subtle virtues call out to be cultivated and cared for. So when somebody has a deep care for subtle virtues, the craftsman stumbles onto something uh, meaningful outside of you because you don't decide which wood is valuable and which is not. The value is inherent to the item itself you produce. Um, And they conclude the task of the craftsman is not to generate meaning, but to cultivate in himself the skill of discerning the meanings that are already there. Now, again, I would... I would push back and say, don't limit yourself to just craftsmen, but approach your entire life like this. Don't generate meaning in your life, but cultivate in yourself the discerning of the meaning that's already there, deep within you, deep within the relationships that you have in the world, deep within your own skills and struggles, that is the meaning there. But in terms of of this idea of the craftsman, 
So if you're able to find a job that even if you're not passionate about, but the job itself is productive, the job itself produces, it's a craft, it has something that's intrinsic, that it's not you just arbitrarily attaching meaning to it, uh, but you're producing, you're out there in the world um, effectively creating things, the act of creation itself is meaningful. If you produce a beautiful song, the song speaks for itself, a book, the ideas jump out. Newport quotes a coding prodigy, Santiago Gonzalez, describing coding, and he writes, beautiful code is short and concise, that if you were to give that code to another programmer, they would say, oh, that's well-written code. It's much like as if you were writing a poem. The code itself speaks for uh, the work. This being the case, the obsession with follow your passion, just do whatever you're passionate about, go out there uh, and just follow it, is motivated by by this flawed idea. And this is, I'm reading from Newport, that what matters most for your career satisfaction is the specifics of the job you choose. In this way of thinking, there are some rarefied jobs that can be source of satisfaction, nonprofit, starting your own company, while others are soulless and bland. But this philosophy frees us from the traps. They don't have rarefied jobs, these craftsmen. They weren't glamorous, but it doesn't matter because the specifics of the work are irrelevant. The meaning uncovered by the efforts is due to the skill and appreciation inherent in craftsmanship, not the outcomes of the work. The wooden wheel isn't noble, but shaping it can be. You just need a rarefied approach to your work. And this goes very much uh, in conjunction with what we talked about in living in the process and loving the process. It's one of the episodes earlier on the Harusa podcast and that's it meaning the process itself is going to give you the satisfaction not the job description and the title that you could put up on your linkedin account because that's all superficial and and that's not going to be a lasting source of meaning but when the process itself when you're producing when you feel productive that in itself is great and that's why the flip side of that the torture that the egyptians did to the jews was they gave them jobs that were that had no process to it so they would have them build, let's say, homes in sand, sand, uh, quicksand, and uh, places, Pitom and Ramses, uh, it's this week's Parsha in the Torah reading, that they were building these cities that would be destructive. Right? The greatest form of torture, making a, they would attach them to the wheel of uh, the grinding wheel that uh, you would grind flour or whatnot uh, that was empty. So you would just be sitting there and make them work, the hard work. You're pulling those heavy things. And when it's empty and, and nothing's actually getting done in the mill, you're just flat, winding the mill back and, and strenuous labor without seeing the results of your productivity. That is the greatest torture. So, no, you, the answer would be uh, unless you're something, you know, super passionate about a cause, a nonprofit cause, then don't limit yourself to only things that you could find a job that you're super passionate about, but let the process itself, the production, uh, your creativity of creating, that you're mirroring Hashem in the world. We're, we're creating godliness in the world when we create things and then use those things for the good. That is, that's the very essence of our, our mission here. Hashem created humans. It's up to humans to create godliness. And that's the that's the goal here. Actually, remembering now as I'm talking, the somebody once wanted to argue that the distinction between humans and non-human animals is the 
fact, if you would take a human and just put them near a airport baggage claim, and as the suitcases are circling around the surveyor belt, task the human to just pick up the suitcase off the, survey, the belt and then put it back on. Off and on, off and on, off and on, all day for their entire job. That it's not actually doing anything. They would go crazy. They would go insane. Uh, depression, suicide would go skyrocketing amongst this population. As opposed to baggage claim workers on in the airline industry that do it, and they, they're doing just fine. There's not. There's no uh, major discrepancy and in, in anxiety and things like of of the sort. The reason is because they're 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 creating. They're doing something. They're they're helping people. And an animal, you put a ox near the uh, surveyor belt if they were somehow able to get the suitcases on and off all day, they would be fine because they're doing the, the grunt work. They don't need that feeling to, to be creative, to be having an impact on the world, to be helping others. Now, here is what is crucial to be looking for in a job when you are looking for a job is that, number one, it has to be something that you're good at. Number two, it has to be something that's productive, that helps other people in the world, like we're saying now. Number three, it has to be something that you're interested in. If it's something that annoys you, that you're super uh, people person, and for you, even if you're creating beautiful code, it, uh, it, it, it will put stresses on you that you, you don't like what you're doing, you don't enjoy what you're doing, or vice versa. If you're a person that is out there going door to door in cold sales and you're the type of person that really would just love to uh, to write code, um, then that wouldn't be good either. So it's gotta be something you're good at, something that is helpful to the world and something that is, that you're, that you're have interested in, that makes you feel fulfilled and ultimately something that provides a livelihood for you, for your family, to help others that is the goal. Now, Yaakov, the patriarch, Jacob, at the end of the first of the five books of the Torah, he calls to all his sons, his 12 children, to his bedside and he gives them final blessings. The blessings of Jacob they're known as. Now, fascinating stuff. If you actually look in the content of the actual blessings itself, he doesn't give what we would understand. You know, typical uh, definition of a blessing would be, oh, you should have great health. You should have overflowing happiness. You should have, which is, anyone listening to this, I, I do genuinely wish that you have overflowing blessings and happiness and, and genuine joy. Um, but that's not what Yaakov does to his, his children. Instead, he goes through each child and tells them something about themselves. The essence. He describes them. He tells them what their traits are. He, he tells Yisachar, you are a scholar. You are a wise person, a, a person of letters. He tells Zavulon to about their business strengths. He goes through each son and, and helps them find their own personal um, essence of who they are. And that's the greatest blessing. When you're able to be in tune with yourself and you know your strengths, you know your capacities, you know your abilities, then you're able to find a occupation, a, a profession to spend your time in a way that maximizes those skills. Because when you feel that you're growing as a person and you're zoned in, that is the happiness and that's what you got to be looking for in a job. Things that tap into your essence and allow you to produce. Mm -hmm.
super interesting question I was asked this week is, is VPN lying or stealing? Is it ethical to use a VPN? It's a fascinating question and has a lot of different angles to unpack. And I'm not currently uh, well up to date on all the different sources and versus um, different manifestations, cases, and, and source texts that are replete throughout the Talmud, throughout Shulchan Aruch, throughout the Rishonah, the medieval commentators, and, and precedent cases and shuvas. So I need time for this one, but this is a super fascinating one that I hope to get to uh, as soon as I have time to delve into the subject matter. Um, it should be super interesting. So thank you very much for this one. Another question came in this week. This is from a dear friend. Did anyone ever reach out to you for getting a free Living in the Presence book? If any other similar sponsorship opportunities come up, I'd be super excited to contribute. So this made me happy for a bunch of different reasons. But uh, yeah, so the answer is that we did um, send out a couple of copies of the book to very gracious and and grateful uh, recipients. And that are jumping into the book and they're discussing these ideas, debating them out in uh, personal conversations. So thank you for all our generous donors. And the answer though was that there's still further opportunities to contribute to. And thankfully this person uh, helped out in a huge way, uh, big donation this week. So once again, we do have uh, some cool opportunities if you'd like uh, to join in the Chavrusa exchange of ideas that have inspired men and women, history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. And you like to jump into the conversation and want a source book that could uh, trigger a lot of these conversations, please reach out and uh, we can make it happen. Question came in this week from a nurse who is working in a COVID vaccine clinic. And the question is, they are have been assigned a role on Shabbos this week, tomorrow, to administer uh, the vaccines. And the question is that he is currently in a position, in a space where he's not yet holding at, not going in at all for Shabbos. But he does want to minimize potential Shabbos, Shabbos uh, unobservances, missed opportunities. And therefore, the question is, what assignment should he sign up for in the clinic? And the default position right now, because there, there's a couple of things you could do. You could do intake, patient intake. You could do post-op. You could do the actual vaccine administration injections. And to the Right now, his assignment is to do the actual injection. So the question is, is there anything on Shabbos that one should be concerned about when administering the vaccine? Now, the first thing that comes to mind, um, there's on Shabbos in general, one is allowed to do work, but one cannot do creative activity. Avodah is fine. Melacha, creative activity, where you're taking something in the natural world and improving it through human input is the element that we're trying to refrain from on Shabbos. Same way Hashem, who created the world, taking inordinate things and making 
them real or creating those things in the first place and then sustaining and just being and living in its existence on the day of Shabbat. And what we're mirroring through during the week, we're creating and manipulating uh, the natural world. We're in business, we're dealing and wheeling and relationships sometimes are frayed and personal focus sometimes is distorted and on Shabbos is that opportunity to just zone into what is, to everything that already is there. And one of the creative activities is something called threshing. Threshing, it used to be you would thresh in the farm, you thresh the figs, um, etc. When a, a manifestation of this or told an outcome of this is also removing produce from a shell because you're that's the, the act of, of creation of threshing is you're taking off the shells and removing the produce. You're improving um, it from a shell. So similar to this would be milking an animal because you're extracting food. And along the same lines is somebody who wounds an animal um, because you are extracting the blood from the wound as long as you have a purpose um, to extract the blood. Now, what about if your intention is simply to wound the animal, which... I don't know why you would do that. That seems very cruel and uh, sadistic. Uh, but then there would be a violation of Tsar Balechaim, of painting an animal, which is a severe um, prohibition of the Torah. Look at the end of the second chapter in Tracti uh, But So while you um, would be violating that, on Shabbos, you only violate it if you have a need for the blood. Now, Unlike that would be human activity, because even if you wound a human and you have no need for the blood, that automatically is a violation of Shabbat. It's also additional violations of, in general, just inciting arguments and things like that. Uh, definitely not recommended, but just even in terms of Shabbat, are you violating Shabbat? You are, because when you wound the the person, you are you are getting a constructive activity because you are taking out your anger, you're calming your temper, uh, things like that. You're causing some sort of mark on the person's body. Um, so there is some sort of creative activity, um, even if perhaps not on a biblical level, but on a derivative level uh, should not be done. Now, what about the injection of the vaccine? So I would believe that the injecting of the vaccine is permitted because for a couple of reasons, you're not um, you're not doing it to get the blood, and it is not a not necessarily even getting uh, extracting the blood. Um, there's a couple of other reasons argued put forth by Rav Usher Weiss, who's one of the leading halakhic authorities in Israel today of our time, as well as Rav Shlomo Avener, that the injection itself is not a activity and therefore is fine. Now, there's another thing that comes up, though, that is considered refua. That one only intervenes medicinally on Shabbat if there is a potential threat for life. This is typically not done on Shabbos. Now, in life-threatening situations, then not only is one permitted to do so on Shabbos, but one would be enjoined to do so, one would be obligated to do so. So, is administering a COVID vaccine a violate a life-threatening situation uh, for the patient? Now, from the patient's perspective, this would very much depend, I believe, on their 
age and health condition. Now, if a person is, let's say, over a certain age, I think, let's say, if you're over 80, the risk of contracting COVID and the detriment, not the risk of contracting it, but the, the effects of, of uh, contracting it are super, super scary, super dangerous. Um, I, I, I forgot the most recent statistic, but it was something like 6,000 times more of a chance of, of real danger to somebody that let's say was under 30 that got it. Um, so the, the uh, person that's over 80 um, is actually in a life-threatening situation. And therefore, if let's say they couldn't get the vaccine on Friday or Sunday, they just have this one appointment and there's shortages in some places that are administering the vaccines, there's only like certain times you could get it. And let's say they could only get it on Shabbos. And yes, it's a life-threatening situation for this person in that age group or if they have existing medical effects. And therefore, um, they would be able to get it on Shabbos. And that is the case. Foster Weiss concludes this way, as well as Rabbi Abner. Now, somebody younger, let's say you're 25 and you want to get the vaccine, then it's not imminent. It's not an imminent threat to a person's life, and therefore they could get it on another day. As for, in general, what you want to do in Shabbos is minimize potential um, risks of of crossing the line on Shabbos. Now, this is, and which is why I really like the question because it notes this this concept, this idea that it's not all or nothing. Judaism's not all or nothing. Life's not all or nothing. Mitzvah observance is not all or nothing. And therefore, if you could keep, let's say, an hour of Shabbos and you could do the whole thing, don't get dejected and be like, well, what do you mean a half hour ago I did this and that, so I might as well not do this. It's not an all or nothing event. And therefore, each each moment is a new moment of Shabbos. So you you want what you want to do, if you want to maximize Shabbos, is keep it as much as possible. And therefore, in a case like this, if you're, for whatever reason, at a point in your life that you don't feel that it's at your struggle point yet to be grappling with uh, not going to work. But if you're going to go, do it in ways that minimize risk as much as possible, like this one. I remember, in fact, uh, back in Tucson, SD was due on Shabbos, and that's a case, of course, you'd go to the hospital and you would, uh, that's considered a sakana nefoshot, a risk of life, and both for the baby, for the mother, so you need to get to the hospital. Not recommended to do it in your kitchen, and um, for a couple of reasons. And uh, so what we did was, before Shabbos, put the hospital in the in the Uber app, or I think it was Lyft, and had our phone ready on Lyft on demand, packed a go bag this way. If we need to go to the hospital on Shabbos, it was greatly minimized the chilul Shabbos, the, the void of Shabbos, because. Um, all it takes is one click instead of many different clicks. Uh, fascinating would be nowadays you could probably order a car share ride through Alexa, something like that. That might be even uh, more ideal. Now, because you're not actually doing anything, it's your voice, it's one degree off. So that's in general a very good approach to, to approach life and Judaism with nuance. And the main question, the main locus of your trajectory is should be the focus, not where you are, but which direction you're going. It's not about are you this high on this high level, that high level, um, but are you going up or are you going down?
Another question came in based on one of the Harusa podcast episodes where we spoke about the idea of always trying to get the news and it was an interesting perspective that it's there's a drop of an ego perspective in there of I need to know what's happening in the world and even though we at first glance consider it a worldly advantage oh you know what's going on so many of it or potentially a lot of it is feeding one's inflated sense of self and importance and the the question was because we had recommended a news cleanse and then to decide afterwards what is needed in your life and how to implement it in a minimalist way where instead of getting sucked into the attention economy of how media uh, is run today where they thrive off your attention that's where all the uh, income comes in from advertising, etc. And there's a loop that once you get in one and they suggest other articles and they get you clicking, clicking, and all of a sudden you look back and two hours have passed. So the question was, though, what about in times like these, unprecedented, that uh, you know there's COVID and policies are, are changing and one day they're suggesting this and then they're suggesting something else based on, on new findings or perhaps other considerations. And um, the question was, so how do you stay abreast of the news while taking this news cleanse? So I would suggest that if there's something that you need to be on top of, then to still implement the minimalist way of, of going about it, meaning decide first, what is the goal? What do you need to know? So you say, well, I need to know the weather so I can't completely uh, stop all sorts of of it, uh, inputs into my mind because that was the a bigger topic of the day in the Kharusa was limiting inputs and uh, getting into zoning into the moment. And so let's say you need to know the weather. So then say, okay, so nine o'clock every morning or whatever time, I'm going to check the weather and that's it. And then you won't find yourself 20 minutes later still sitting on the couch. Or if you need to find the latest CDC, so how often do you need to go? Maybe I'll check in bi-weekly at a certain time, just check and that's it. Or whatever, I need to know the sports scores, I need to know this. Whatever you feel uh, you want to know that you're holding at, that this is where where you're at in your inputs and it won't be too distracting from uh, from your core mission then decide what that is and what it needs to be and then get to the most effective way possible. It might not be through the news anymore. So you might say, well, I use Facebook to keep up with my old college friends and to see if maybe one of them moved. Okay, so then you don't need to be refreshing your feed every hour, but you can check in once a week from a browser and uh, see where, if they've moved or if your cousin had a baby, then instead of liking their post, you could give them a call or something. So here's something that uh, got me going. So I have a meeting set up with a colleague that I'm working on a project together with that he initiated the meeting. We set a time, 11.30 a.m. The next morning, I got a text. By the way, just to let you know, I have a couple of errands that I'm doing, and that's the noise. If you hear it, don't mind the uh, the clatter. Okay, I get it. COVID, work life schedules are all in flux. You know, people are flexible, so I, I respond. Okay, let's reschedule that. He responds, no, let's keep at the same time. I don't think we should reschedule. I did this once already in a different meeting, and it was fine. I was able to to be productive. Now, here's the thing. 
in my mind, this is a complete lack of respect um, for a person's focus and, and attention. And it's funny because now we're learning through living in the presence of being focused, being in the moment, not being distracted in the thing. And okay, if you don't want to do it on your own, you're want to multitask this myth of multitasking that you're able to focus then fine but when you schedule a time with somebody else and you're going through something you i think it's behooven on on myself on us whoever it is to give the person full attention if it's not something that you want to give full attention to that you don't think is worthy of attention so then don't put it on your priorities focus on whatever you think is a greater priority i'm not saying talking to me working on a project has got to be your number one thing but if you do think that it's important, which I do, then you got to give your full focus to and uh, respect. Anyway, sorry, I needed to get this off my chest. It's actually felt good. It was therapeutic. Maybe we'll have a segment of the Friday episode of the uh, weekly complaint. So this is my complaint for the week. Time for the book recommendation of the week, the weekly book recommendation. Now, there's something magical about a used bookstore incredible they just the first of all the scent of vintage books unbelievable i just got a candle scented candle vintage book aged paper scent unbelievable it, it transports you back in time and there's just so much uh, treasures and uh just the story of the book itself of where it traveled happens to be this book that i'm recommending now it's called the miracle of intervale avenue the story of a jewish congregation in the south bronx is written by jack kugel mass in 1986, and you can even see there's the initial names of the authors. Um, it was once owned by Jason Aronson in Northville, New Jersey, and then a Mr. M. Canner in Silver Spring, Maryland, who I don't know who that is. And then it made its way into used book sale, and it was purchased by myself. Now, it's a really cool book, and that's why I'm recommending it, because I like it. And why the reason why I like it so much is... So this Jack, the author, um, he went to the Bronx, the South Bronx at the time, to document Jewish life there. So he was an anthropologist of sorts, and he wanted to um, talk about the life. And you just see the way of life there. there the Jews, these older Jews living in the Bronx, holding out there at a time that most of the, at a time there were tons of Jews living in the Bronx, hundreds of thousands. Um, and then they slowly moved out. And this last congregation, this last holdout, it's the story of the people there and their sense of humor and their optimism and living amongst poverty for many of them. And their concepts of what is a good material life and just the pleasures that they experience. And then you contrast it to today where at times you can get overwhelmed by what I'm lacking and what I don't have and what others may have that I don't. And you could feel a sense of discomfort. But when you when you think about just the pleasures that we have, the air conditioning and heating, uh, that are, I'm pretty sure uh, it's almost uh, commonplace in all areas in the United States, the foods that we have, you can get a plum whenever you want, pretty much. Pretty cool stuff. And and just the thing, uh, one, the one line that sticks out to me right now is one of the men in the story uh, takes on a new job and Jack asks and he says, how do you take a new job? You already have like four or five jobs that you're working to make ends meet. And he says, exactly. I have five jobs already. So what's the big deal? I'll take another one. 
Well, it's a testament to the devotion, hard work, and the sacrifice that the generations before us really put in um, to making life in America, most of them immigrants, perhaps Holocaust survivors, and should be super appreciative and grateful and reflective of the wealth that we have uh, today, the wealth in, in the sense of inner contentment and sight and taste and and luxuries like a refrigerator that we're taking that we often take for granted. Thank you so much for joining the Chavrusa podcast. If you have any questions you'd like to send in for a future edition of The Mailbag, or if you have any other questions, comments, or thoughts, please feel free to reach out. My number is 347-893-4467, or I can reach through various media channels social media channels. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, wonderful weekend, wonderful Shabbos, and hope to see you back in the Harusa beginning next Monday.